You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. Well, uh, good morning and welcome to Grace Community Church. Thank you so much for being here uh, today. We have uh, set up a platform in a little unusual way. We're going to have a panel a little bit later on. I'll tell you more of that as we go. Uh, if it's your first time here at Grace, we extend to you a special welcome. I want to make sure everyone knows of two things happening on the last Sunday of this month, October 29th. Uh, we're going to have uh, our next edition of the Grace Connection class. So if you are new to Grace you want to learn more about it, or if you're thinking about membership, we begin that. It's a four-week session, the hour before church begins, and um, it, it runs for four weeks. Um, so we will have child care if you need it, but we'll have a sign-up sheet. We've got a sign-up sheet by the coffee in the welcome room. Please uh, sign up if you think you may be interested in that. If you are interested in becoming a member, it's a requirement, but just because you take it, doesn't mean we assume you're going to become a member. So if you want to just learn about grace, be there. And then that night at 5 o'clock, we're going to meet here, gather here at grace. And we're going to have a spaghetti, baked spaghetti kind of a dinner. It'll be fairly quick. And then at 6.30, we're going to start uh, showing a film on Martin Luther, uh, who we're talking about so much during this session. But there were a lot of people <coughs> who <coughs> were important to the Reformation, but Martin Luther held a very special place in that. And we just keep coming back to him. He was the one who really uh, uh, articulated initially the differences between Catholicism and what he considered to be uh, orthodox theology. And that's what we're talking about these days. And before I jump in, I just want to say thank you, uh, Bella, for that beautiful song this morning, Thy Will Be Done. What a, what a good word. It's the prayer that God always answers. You can be sure He always answers that prayer. Thy will be done. Well, the Reformation took, took, took place 500 years ago. What was it and why does it matter in the 21st century? Uh, we're in week three of ten weeks in which we will attempt to answer these questions. What was it? Why is it important now? In October of 1517, a German monk, a rather coarse German monk, we might say, named Martin Luther challenged the Roman Catholic Church to a debate about matters of salvation. Now, it was officially about indulgences, but ultimately it was about matters of salvation. Uh, the Catholic Church was not responsive, so churches broke away, or, 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 as the case may be, they were driven away from the Catholic Church, or from Rome. Uh, and what started as an attempt to reform the Catholic Church ended in the Protestant Church movement. We're meeting in this space and time as Grace Community Church because of what happened on October 31st, 1517. Reformation Day. JD, fake J.D. Greer uh, tweeted this morning, only 23 day, shopping days left until Reformation Day. I thought that was pretty good. <laughs> so the five solas represent an attempt to distinguish Protestant doctrine, Protestant theology from Roman Catholic doctrine. Sola is a Latin word for alone. 
We believe that Scripture alone, not what the Pope says, not what our hearts say, but Scripture alone points to salvation in Christ alone, through faith alone. Uh, as our only hope of salvation, we're saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone. Not good works in any part, on <coughs> any efforts that we produce whatsoever can work toward our salvation. And it's to the glory of God alone, not to our own wisdom, not to even our own good fortune to believe. God, to God be the glory for our salvation. So today is the first of two Sundays that we will be contemplating Christ alone. Was Jesus' work on the cross sufficient for our salvation or do we have some role to play? Is it all on Christ or is some of it on us equally relevant and especially in our day? Is Jesus the only way a person can be saved? Is he the only path to heaven or are there many roads that lead to heaven? My my grandmother used to tell me there that her Methodist pastor said, a Protestant pastor said, there are many roads to heaven. And she would especially tell me that there was one lady who was assured of heaven because she was so good to cats. <laughs> People think that kind of stuff, don't they? Really sad. And as far as I know, my grandmother never understood that it's Christ in Christ alone. Well, those questions and more will be addressed by a panel of our elders at the end of our time. But first now, I want us to look at a text that is enormously influential in Roman Catholic life and theology. Matthew 16, verses 30 to 20, where Peter, uh, Jesus told Peter that he would give him the keys to the kingdom of heaven. As the scripture is read, I will ask that you stand out of respect for God's word. Matthew Chapter 16, verses 13 through 20. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked the disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? Who am I? Who do, you, who do people say that I am? Jesus asked. And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But he said, he said to them, but, but who do you say that I am? Look, there's, in the Greek, there's this emphatic sense of what's going on. He says, but you, who do you say that I am? He's talking to all of the disciples when he asked that. But Simon Peter, on behalf of the disciples, replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. By the way, take notice. He's saying the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, not that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church in America or in any place. The gates of hell, the gospel will go forth until Jesus returns. The gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. And I will give you, Peter, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Let's pray.
Well, Father, we get a sense of how complicated this text is. There is um, help for us both in the original language in which it was written in the Greek and also with the rest of Scripture. And the ways that the Holy Spirit affirms and confirms Scripture in our hearts in accordance with what believers have, have believed all through the ages. Lord, I pray that you would open our hearts as well as our minds, help us to understand, help us to believe. And Lord, we exalt and honor and lift Christ, the crucified Christ, as our only hope of salvation and as our mediator between man and God and as the means by which we are able to enter your throne room and make these requests. And we pray in the name of Jesus and all that it means and all that it represents. Amen. Thank you and be seated. Well, this striking conversation between Jesus and the apostles uh, that we've just read about took place in a city called Caesarea Philippi. It was a strikingly pagan city. It was 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee, and it was the farthest that Jesus ever ventured away from Jerusalem. He was as far away from the law being having the prominent place in the minds of people as he could be. It's in a place where people worshipped not only uh, a false perception and understanding of, of, of Jehovah, but they worshipped false gods. They worshipped idols. And so, as we come to this conversation, and, and, and Jesus is there with his disciples, anytime the four Gospels talk about... Jesus was with his disciples. You don't know for sure if he's talking about the 12 apostles. You don't know if the writer's talking about the 12 apostles or a much larger group, including men and women that followed Jesus almost everywhere he went. Um, but in this case, it seems fairly clear, fairly certain that he's talking to the 12 who are with him. So, and that meant that when Jesus said in verse 20, don't tell anybody that I am the Christ, he, he had some sense that it would be that, that command would be kept. But, but why the secret? Why did Jesus not want others to know? I can't answer that question other than to say it was, God's, it was not God's time for the nation of Israel to know at that level. Which again speaks to why Jesus was in such an unlikely place for this uh, uh, profession and uh, announcement that he was going to make. So Jesus' question to the apostles is a good one for us today, don't you think? Who do people say that I am? <clears throat> Who do people say that Jesus is today? The apostles gave answers that you would expect people to hear in this day. Some say you're a religious leader reincarnated. Some say you're a prophet of some sort. Uh, in John 7, where we spent time earlier this year... Some people called Jesus a teacher. Others said he was an imposter. But some understood him to be <clears throat> the Messiah. Jesus directed his question to all 12 apostles when he said, But who do you say that I am? 
Now, in the English, when we use the second person, uh, the pronoun in the second person, we don't know whether someone is speaking to you as an individual or to you as a group. We, Greek has different forms uh, for, for the singular and the plural, and we come up with our own forms, right? If I'm speaking to you, Bert Wallace, that's one thing, but if I'm speaking to all y'all, I say that, you know. Or you guys, or you guys, depending on how far into the city you are, you know. So we have ways of distinguishing. We don't see it in the Greek, but here's what's going on. Jesus asked all of the disciples. Peter answers on behalf of the group. And then Jesus directly addresses Peter. And he said, you are blessed. Because God has revealed something to you that you could not know on your own. Flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, Peter. But my Father has revealed this to you. God has revealed to you that I am the the Christ, the Son of the living God. The exchange between Jesus and Peter in Matthew 16, 21 through 23, which, which follows immediately behind this text, and I was going to put it in, but I, I took it out because of time, is the section where you know, Jesus starts talking about, I'm going to be crucified, and Peter steps up and says, Lord, are you kidding? Are you, no, that's not what the, is going to happen to the Messiah. And Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You concerned about the things of man, not the things of God. Jesus could not allow Satan to distract him from God's plan for his life, which was to go to the cross. By the way, if God calls, if Jesus calls Peter Satan, if he says, get behind me, Satan, every single one of us is fully capable of being used by Satan in the wrong way. Always be careful about how you interact with other people, about the Lord especially, but even in your interactions with other people, when you think you're so righteous and God is so much on your side, the son may say, step over there, Satan. Uh, You care about your own things, not the things of God. In time, though, Peter would come to know that Jesus was and is God, the second person of the Trinity. Upon Peter's confession, Jesus now uttered the words that as much as anything else divide Catholics and Protestants. Jesus said in verse 17, you are Petras, you are Peter or the rock. And that's the rock with a capital R. Um, I don't think if I were a wrestler, I would want that name, the rock, you know, because you're, that's what Peter called Jesus called Peter. And then he said, and upon this Petra, another form of the word, Petros, and upon this Petra, this rock, or this stone, with a little r, that's Petra, that's rock with a little r, I will build my church. Jesus was using a wordplay. I get a sense, almost of the sense of Jesus' humor in this text where all this you, you, it's almost like he says, you, Peter, you are the man. And upon you, I will build my church. I'm going to make a case for that in just a little bit. Um, So I've got a little ahead of myself telling jokes. Uh, That's I usually get behind when I start telling jokes. And so there we go. Um, In verse 19, Jesus tells Peter. Now, think about these words. 
I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. That sounds like Jesus is bestowing ultimate authority on Peter, doesn't it? In fact, the Roman Catholic Church understands this to mean that Jesus passed his authority, all of his authority, to Peter. And then Peter passed that authority down to the present day pope and bishops. This doctrine is known as apostolic succession. And there are some Protestant churches that believe that as well. That the authority of the apostles goes right down. And so church leadership plays a very important role in those uh, churches that believe in apostolic succession. Roman Catholics believe that in addition to Jesus, the Pope and the whole priestly class, along with Mary and the saints, need to approach God on behalf of the people, just like the priest did in the Old Testament. Where does this doctrine come from? I, I don't find it in the New Testament. 2 Timothy 2.2, Paul says to Timothy, the things that you have learned from me, amongst many witnesses, the same pass to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Teach this to faithful men. And it goes to... Write down, that is the, 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 the means for discipleship, but I don't find apostolic succession in that. Certainly there's nothing about it here. We'll come to that a little bit more, but, but, but when, when the Catholics elevate tradition with a capital T, we talked about a few weeks ago, and official pronouncements from the Pope to be on the same level as Scripture, well, there's your answer. The biggest problem with this doctrine is the notion that Jesus' death on the cross is not enough to save us. There will be much more about this as we examine the next sola, sola gratia, or grace alone. But it would not be too extreme to say that Catholic doctrine does not affirm that Christ alone will save you. You can only be saved, in fact, with the intervention of the Pope and his representatives. And they would point to the end of verse 19 to justify this authority. Once again, though, the Greek gives us some direction, and I'm going to say that in just a minute, but I do want to say this. Please understand that, that, that look, just because the Catholic Church, this is the official position of the Catholic Church, does not mean that Catholics are not believers. Many Catholics are believers. Many Catholics would say, absolutely, I trust Jesus alone for my salvation. They understand other and, and I'm going to, I need to say this over and over, and I'll, I'll say it in just a few minutes. Don't spend your time fighting Catholicism. I'm trying to bring about distinctions here. But if you just understand Scripture and interpret Scripture with a sense of, I, I just need to, to defeat Catholicism here, then you're going to go a long way in a direction that Scripture doesn't go. Don't do that with an anti-Catholic kind of a, a view of Scripture, but go with a pro-gospel. I'll, I'll say that again in a little bit. Uh, so let's see how the Greek gives us direction about this. Jesus says, I, Jesus, will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. That's our translation. But, but these words form a complex uh, verbal construction in the Greek that constitutes a future passive 
Uh, future perfect passive in the Greek. It's future perfect passive. Now, I know some of you were already thinking that's the case. You said, hey, wait a minute. Why is this translated like this? It's a future perfect passive. So why is it translated uh, like this? While it may seem to say that the decisions that Peter and thus by extension the church makes on earth must be then carried out in heaven. Kind of like God saying, well, I, I wouldn't have done it, but hey, the church has done it, so I have to go with it. You know, we're going to go with it here. And of course, that's a cynical view, and, and, and that wouldn't be a Catholic view. They would say, well, whatever we do here, God's given us this authority, so we better use it very carefully. But instead, it's the other way, exactly the opposite. In fact, if you translate this literally, it will read, whatever you bind on earth will have already been bound in heaven. In other words, the church is the expression of God, not God conforms to the decisions of the church. Understand the difference? It's not 100% certain that this is the correct reading, but it is far more likely, and it's consistent with the rest of Scripture. So, just before the panel comes, I'm going to conclude this portion of the service by giving two lists that you can pursue in home group this week or in private study. Uh, the first list is, talks about the special place that Peter uh, held in the building of God's church and in his kingdom. And the second list will tell us why we believe as Protestants that Peter was not the first pope who then passed his authority all the way down to the present time. I won't spend much time at all, so you'll need to check these things out for yourself. And uh, if you're a note taker, you may want to take pictures instead of notes because we're going to go pretty quickly here. Uh, the first one is this. Peter is listed as first among the apostles. Matthew 10, 2 literally says the names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter. Clearly, Peter has a very special place in the kingdom. You know Peter. You know this about Peter, don't you, though? You should. Uh, Peter was in the inner circle of three at the transfiguration. <clears throat> Matthew 17, verses 1 to 8. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, Matthew 26, 36 to 38. Anytime Jesus took three disciples aside, you know, when there's an inner circle of the twelve, it was Peter, James, and John. In Matthew 16, today's text, Jesus has high words of praise for Peter. In fact, number three, upon this rock probably refers to Peter himself, not to his confession. Now, I'm going to guess that you've always been told when Jesus says, I'm calling you the rock. And upon this rock, big R, you're the rock. But upon this rock, little r, I will build my church. You've probably been told that this is talking about Jesus or Peter's confession. The rock-solid confession that Peter made about Jesus. <clears throat> Look, there is that possibility, but while many Protestants um, interpret it this way because they just don't want to give ammunition to, to the Catholics, even in this day, even Protestant theologians now agree that Jesus was saying, I'm going to build my church on you, Peter. Once again, 
careful not to say, well, it can't say that because then the Catholics would be right. Look, I've got no problem with Jesus saying to Peter, I'm going to build my church on you. Be very careful about proof texted. This last point will tell you about what Jesus was saying about Peter, his status uh, in, in, the, in, in the kingdom. The keys of the kingdom of heaven probably indicates Peter's role whenever the gospel spread to a new people group. Acts 2, Acts 8, Acts 10. It should not be surprising to us that, that, that Jesus singled out Peter when we look in retrospect to have, retrospect, to have a, a special role in the establishment of the church. In Acts 2, we're told that Peter preached at Pentecost and 3,000 Jewish men came to Christ, not even counting women and children. It says 3,000 souls in the ESV, but the way they counted, they counted men. And then women and children were added to those numbers. Uh, so then in Acts 8, when Philip preached in Samaria, even though the Samaritans believed and were baptized, they received water baptism. Think about this. Word got back to Jerusalem. They sent word down to Jerusalem and say, hey, you don't know. You can't imagine what's going on here. Samaritans are believing. See, because to this point, Peter and the apostles thought that this was a Jewish thing, that now we're in Christ. Back then it was the law, but now we understand this a lot better. And so Peter and John hot-footed it up to Samaria. And when they came, the Holy Spirit came upon these believers. And... It was confirmation that the gospel was now moving to Samaritans. Quite a few years later, in Acts 10, some 10 years after Pentecost, Peter receives this vision, and he's like, the Lord brings down this great sheep from heaven holding all this, uh, these unclean animals. And Peter, 10 years a believer, 10 years a follower of Christ, is still holding to the Jewish dietary laws, and he says... The Lord says, Peter, kill these animals and eat them. Kill these animals and eat them. By the way, that's a tough one. If you're, if you're vegetarian for philosophical purposes, God affirms the, 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 the legitimacy of killing animals to eat them. And Peter says, not so, Lord, because nothing unclean has ever touched my lips. He said, lips. He said don't call unclean what the Lord has confirmed to be clean. So about that time, he gets a knock on the door. Hey, this Gentile centurion would really like to see you. And Peter goes up and Cornelius and his household are saved. And the Holy Spirit comes on them just like he did at the first 10 years earlier. Affirming and confirming that Gentiles now belong to the covenant family of God. Look, Peter was surprised about this new change in God's covenant family. And that's going to support this next group of uh, points that we're going to be making. Even so, there's pretty strong evidence about Peter's special role in the kingdom. So don't get hung up when, when the Lord says to Peter, I will give you the keys of the kingdom. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound. Remember the Greek, how it says whatever you bind on earth will have already been bound in heaven. So we're going to spend a few minutes thinking about why Peter was not the Pope. First, Jesus gave the same authority to the rest of the apostles 
that he had given to Peter in Matthew 18, 15 to 20, which is just a few chapters later in Matthew, the only other time Jesus uses the word church in the Gospels, and he gives the elders of the church the, the role of leading the congregation in bringing discipline on a wayward brother or sister. So a whole lot of people are involved in the decision for, for church discipline for someone. And in John 20, 23, we looked at a few weeks ago when the apostles were told, and this is far more striking than what Jesus said to Peter about binding and loosing on earth and then it being bound and loosing, being loosed in heaven. Um, he says, Whatever sins you forgive on earth will already have been forgiven in heaven. Once again, it's the perfect tense. Um, so he's saying to the, the apostles, whenever you forgive people's sins, then they will be forgiven in heaven. Or he's actually saying they will have already been forgiven in heaven. And that authority is given to all the apostles. And by the way, even though the apostles replaced Judas with Matthias. When James died, there's no indication that they, have, that, that they replaced James. One of the reasons that we say that the Bible was done when, when the apostles died is because the apostolic witness, I believe it's Ephesians 2, talks about the foundation of the church is built on the apostles, Jesus and the apostles' doctrine, the apostles' teaching. That's the idea of it. So... Jesus gave the same authority to the rest of the apostles, and it was unique. It was unique, the authority that they had to get, uh, communicate the will of God to us through writings that would become Scripture. Two, second, every time Peter sought to distinguish himself from the other apostles, his actions ended in failure. I mean, every time Peter says, I'm going to step up now, the Lord says, uh, really? Okay. Come to me on the water. Okay, you're not going to deny me. Uh, yes, you will. You're going to deny me three times. Or you're not going to forsake me. You're going to deny me three times. So Peter tried to distinguish himself, but it ended in failure every time. Third, Paul publicly rebuked Peter in Galatians 2, 11 to 14. And he wrote it down for all posterity. God's word is eternal. And Peter's blunder is going to be known through all eternity. We'll think about it a lot differently when we're in glorified bodies and minds. Uh, but there it is. And this is a pretty big deal. Can you imagine one of the cardinals saying about the Pope? I withstood him to his face. I can't. I, I, I don't see that. Peter was not the Pope. Need more evidence? Fourth. When Peter and Paul... Uh, Paul and Peter appeared before the Jerusalem council over the issue written about in Galatians. Peter submitted himself to that council or that group of elders, which was led at some level by James, the half-brother of Jesus. So it's pretty fascinating. Again, read that text and see. I'm not sure how this, this stacks up. Uh, this this is even, even bigger than the previous point. Don't you think that the Pope would lead such a council? I would. And then last, P 
Peter disappears from the historical account of the early church after Acts 15. Though we hear from him in his wonderful letters known as 1st and 2nd Peter. Where, by the way, Peter identifies himself as an elder. In fact, a fellow elder. That's significant. It seems strange to me that the story of the church spreading all over the Middle East and Europe and the scriptures remain silent on the vicar of Christ. Truly, I don't mean any of this to be sarcastic. I know it may be perceived that way, but, but doesn't it seem odd to you, especially if the Pope and the, and the bishops must mediate our salvation that... That Peter is off the scene pretty much? I, I think so. So. We're going to move into this. Thought about Christ alone. Our panel who I will invite to. Uh, the, the, the platform this morning. This week is a little larger than last time. Uh, Christian Pope. It's appropriate don't you think. That we have Christian Pope up here. Uh, on this day. Um, Michael Moneypenny, Lee Williford are going to come to uh, the platform. So we're going to talk about these questions. What does it mean um, when we talk about Christ alone today? Uh, there's so much more material, as you can imagine, than we could possibly cover. These guys have been doing a lot of reading. So whenever you see a panel up here and you've got questions about this particular solda, these are the guys to ask. They know so much more than they're communicating this morning. Actually, they're probably read enough to be far more confused than you are about uh, the issue. Is that not right, gentlemen? Absolutely impossible. <laughs> yes. So, Chris Pope, Mike Moneypenny, Lee Williford, thank you very much for your, your efforts on our behalf as, uh, as Grace Community Church. Um, first question is this. Salvation is found in Jesus alone. This, according to Jesus and to the apostles, there are a fair number of people who read the New Testament, though, and understand that there are many roads to heaven. How? Again, I don't know. Uh, I have never seen uh, that in Scripture. I can see where people get good works, but the surprising ways that people interpret or interpret Scripture is pretty Amazing. Uh, the biggest road, or the widest road that many people think about getting to heaven is the morality road. So what are some verses or passages in the New Testament that point to Christ alone? Well, the first thing that kind of comes to my mind is uh, John 14, verse 6. And actually, that's kind of the, the focal point. But if you back up a little bit in John 14, you'll notice that Jesus is talking about the, where he is going and preparing a place for them. And Thomas asks him specifically... How can we know? We don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And he's not necessarily saying he's a celestial footman. He's not the gatekeeper. Um, later on in the passage, Philip's asking him, you know, a little bit about that. You know, you know show us the Father and that will be enough for us. And Jesus turns to him and he's kind of a little bit exasperated. And basically his explanation is, have I not been with you long enough? You know, when you see me, you're seeing the Father. In a sense, he's telling the, the apostles at that point in time, I am God, and yet they still don't get it. 
even after Jesus' crucifixion uh, in the book of Acts, uh, we have Peter and John, and they're preaching in the temple. And pretty successfully, they've healed a lame man, and they've had about 5,000 folks that have uh, accepted Jesus Christ. And the, uh, I guess the Sadducees are not too pleased, so they've arrested them. And the next day, they had to appear before the Sanhedrin. And this is a pretty big deal. This council consists of elders and the leaders of the day and priests. And they pointedly asked them, uh, by whose name did you do this? Meaning the healing of the lame man. And we're told that Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. So filled with the Holy Spirit, so he's basically speaking Jesus, to Jesus and God here. And he says, uh, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, there is no name under heaven among men by whom we must be saved. He doesn't say whom we can be saved. He said through whom we must be saved. So these priests and so forth, uh, certainly they believed in the Old Testament, God, but uh, they're not seeing the entire <clears throat> Trinity. They're not seeing the Godhead, even though the Holy Spirit is speaking directly to them. I'll go to 1 Corinthians, uh, the end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2. Um, the cross during this time was a very taboo, ugly thing. Um, and to imagine before the crucifixion that the king of the world would meet his <coughs> demise on an ugly cross was just unimaginable. I'm, I'm sure very few, if anyone, imagined that the fate of Jesus would find him um, naked and beaten and hanging on a cross. And so to imagine that then would be difficult. To believe it now is even still difficult, um, but it is by God's power that we, that we do, just as we, we heard uh, Peter believing. It was, it was through God's power. Uh, so in 1 Corinthians, uh, the end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2, um, we're told that God uses the, wise, uses the unwise to, to overcome the wise, who would be seen as, as the Greek. Um, and then you would have the Jews who would have just such a hard time um, with, with the idea of the cross and, and the things that God uses, you and, you and I, the, the common, um, the, what would be seen as, as unwise, the unlearned, um, to, to overcome uh, the idea that we ourselves could earn our salvation rather than the Savior of the world coming to earth and dying on a cross um, and being raised again um, is, is just unimaginable. Um, it's not our wisdom that saves us, um, as Isaiah uh, teaches us, uh, but it is uh, the Spirit of the Lord um, given to us by the sacrifice of, of our Savior. Um, and no other religion in the, in the world teaches that. Um, Muhammad did not uh, offer himself as a sacrifice for the believers of Allah. Buddha did not. Um, he just simply offered lots of one-liners, good, good thoughts, um, because it is not our works that save us, but the work, the saving work, the salvific work that Jesus performed on the, the folly of the cross. Um, and that, that's, where we, that's where we go. Yeah, it's, very, it's counterintuitive, isn't it, the gospel? And it's one of the reasons it's so difficult 
for people who are convinced that your good works lead you to heaven um, are when they're confronted with the doctrine of Christ alone, uh, it, it just, they just think, well, it can't be. It's not possible that I can, at the end of my life, cry out to Jesus and after having lived a horrible life, he saved me. And a good person, on the other hand, um, doesn't get rewarded. In fact, is condemned because he's trusting in his good works. When we say Christ alone, that distinguishes Protestant theology from Catholic theology. But isn't that offensive to Catholics? I mean, is the implications that Catholics do not believe in Jesus for salvation, that they think there's some other way to be saved? I, I would say no. They certainly um, believe in, in, the, in the, the person of Jesus, the deity of Jesus, um, as a um, part of the Trinity. Um, the church has professed that um, ever since the ascension of Christ, um, and, and we continue to profess that too. But it, it's, it's what Luther brought up, the, the points that Luther, Martin Luther brought up uh, about um, 500 years ago. Um, that is what kind of separates us from what uh, Roman Catholicism teaches um, as a response to uh, the Reformation, to Martin Luther's work, and then the uh, continued work that, um, that kind of ignited uh, the Catholic Church uh, long desired to have a council. And so in 1545, they did. They started what's called the Council of Trent. Um, I would certainly encourage you to do just a little bit of research on what um, the Roman Catholic Church at that time uh, put forth as a result of 18 years of study uh, through this Council of Trent. And um, it, it's amazing. They, they clearly said that Jesus is the Son of God. He is deity. He is a part of the Trinity. But it is not by Jesus alone that you can be saved. It's almost as though they elevated Jesus Christ and then, and, and then, and then built this huge wall around him and said, we would love for you to come this way, but first you must get through the wall. It's a great analogy. And, that, and that is, those are the points uh, that Martin Luther, I'm so thankful uh, pointed out based on scripture uh, that differentiated where the Catholic, Roman Catholic Church was at that time in the 16th century. Um, what they affirmed in 1545 through 1563. And, um, and, and I would certainly encourage you just to read so that you do know kind of what their perspective is on does Christ alone save us? Yeah, in fact, the Roman Catholic Church essentially said, you're right, we need reforming, just not in the way that you're saying and so that's what the Council of Trent is. It, 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 re, it established the Roman Catholic dogma against Protestant dogma. And I like uh, the way that you referred to it as a wall. And that, that harkens way back in, in uh, to the days of the Levitical uh, priesthood and the you know, family of Aaron with the high priest. Because back then, you know, um, there, was, uh, there was no way that man could be in God's presence except for the high priest and he was separated from the Holy of Holies by a curtain or a veil which uh, once a year that he would I guess for absolutions for himself and prepare himself and then go in and present the nation of Israel to, uh, to God. There was no way for a man to do it and then recall you know like Matthew's description of Jesus' death in chapter 27 when Jesus gave up his spirit 
the veil in the temple, which separated man from the Holy of Holies, was rent from top to bottom, it was split in two. And so what this is an implication of, that there is no longer this wall, this veil, between us and God. In a sense, we have the same access to God that the high priest had of old. So in a sense, we are priests. And Jesus is our high priest, no longer representing us here on earth, but in heaven at God's right hand. And so we no longer need this earthly presentation that they use in uh, the Roman Catholic Church to present each individual through martyrs, through the, through the saints, through the priest, through confession to God. And, and obviously, Protestants believe in the priesthood of the believer. And so in unison with what my brothers are speaking of up here, essentially Jesus' work on the cross, his work in his life, his death, his resurrection, is sufficient for us. And so if you go to 1 Timothy 2 and look at that chapter, essentially what, what Paul is saying to Timothy in, in a sense, and to kind of boil it down, is there's one God, or there's only one God. There's one mediator, and he's made propitiation in his blood. And he did so at the perfect time. And when you go back to it specifically, I'd like to read it to you. It's like um, verse 6 specifically, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the, te the testimony given at the proper time, which kind of begs the question, what's the proper time? And the proper time being when we couldn't do anything for ourselves. And so in a sense with the question, it, yes, it, it, it is offensive or would be offensive, I believe, to a practicing Catholic who believes in that structure and believes in that organization that they have to approach God in that way. But in a sense, if, if we believe Protestants, easy for me to say, that we you know, are a priesthood of believers, then we have the opportunity to approach his throne in prayer. We have the opportunity to read his Bible and read his word and to know his, his will for our lives, as the song said this morning. His will will be done. Yeah, and as far as the structure of the church, um, I think that maybe the right word would be the ecclesiology of the Roman <laughs> Catholic Church, um, which is pope, cardinals, bishops, and, and on down. And, and studying the word... There, there is no, that structure is not given to us. In fact, the, the Catholic Church would say that, based on Matthew 16, Jesus created the role of prime minister for heaven and placed Peter into that role and gave him a cabinet, um, kind of in a modern day, they look at, at how, it would, how it would be viewed. Um, and that, that's, that's a lot of reading into the scripture um, that has certainly had an impact on, on the church throughout the last 2,000 years. And, and we as believers, as uh, Protestant Reformed believers, um, would say we do believe in the priesthood of the believer. That does not assign to you a private relationship with Jesus Christ. In fact, that's what baptism is. It is your public profession, and you are baptized into the body of believers. Um, it, is, it does not mean you are free to go about and uh, create your own faith. Um, it is be a part of the church, be a part of the body of Christ, um, and that's, that's what we would—that was what we would believe um, as, as part of the a part of the Reformation. Yeah, private and public—that's a big deal. Uh, David Calvert has encountered several churches where they set up communion uh, on a table in the back, and you're just free at any point to go. But communion is a body activity, 
In fact, uh, we're not talking about this a whole lot. Maybe one of you guys is going to talk about this a little bit. But personal relationship with Jesus, as important as we all understand that to be, is a little bit problematic when you think about the church. And now I've really, as my dad used to say, you've ripped it now, boy. Because I've said it and I don't have time to explain it. Uh, but I'll get to it, okay? Next week will be a good time for me to uh, address that. Um, I, I do want... So much more to say, but I want us to bring it into what, what does this mean for us today? Uh, <clears throat> and so here's a question. Why did Jesus die on the cross? Was it so that I might be drawn to him in repentance and faith? Or did he die as an example of one who gives everything for love? Was Christ's death enough to win my salvation? Or did it simply put me in the right direction and ultimately... It is up to me with a little help uh, from him. And I, I probably, let me see if I can, I, something that came to me last night. A Methodist uh, bishop said this. If Jesus can change, if he can give up his bigotries and prejudices, if he can realize that he had made his life too small, and if this realization, in this realization, he grew closer to others and closer to God, then so can we. I said that to my pastor buddies and said a word from my pastor friends and didn't White immediately wrote back and said, I just threw up. <laughs> so, uh, what do you guys have to say about this? Did Jesus just sort of help us? Did he figure it out himself and he died as an example? Or, 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 or is there more to it? If, again, go back to Scripture, go back to Romans 3. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And uh, we're, we're justified by His grace as a gift of that redemption in, in Christ Jesus. And if you read on further within that same text, it talks about his, in His divine forbearance, He passed over former sins. And I know we all know a little bit about Moses and we talk about Passover. And so, yes, you know, God did pass over their sins when they, you know, put blood on the lentils and on the, the doorposts. But at the same time, I think if we, if we look at it that way, essentially, if, if Jesus just died as an example to us, essentially, it's, you know, he came to earth, he lived a great life, he died. And so, you know, we're, we're able to experience God's love because God sent him. And so by experiencing his love, we learn to be better to one another. And it's similar to what was spoken to in the, the last panel discussion we had. You know, we didn't go through, you know, thousands of years of, of torture and, and, and different things that, that the Christian faith has experienced over time to just learn how to be nice to one another. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned uh, quickly the, the Passover and teaching um, our daughter Evelyn we are going through a little kid's story Bible, um, and it mentions uh, the people of, of uh, Egypt, or the, God's people in Egypt, uh, once the Passover comes, how they were to take a spotless lamb and uh, sacrifice it and put the blood over their doorway, and uh, God would pass over their household. Um, he didn't say, go inside, kneel, pray the rosary, and hopefully I'll pass over you. The blood of the lamb was sufficient enough. And that is exactly what Jesus is for us. He is sufficient uh, for us. He is enough. He, he was a moral teacher, but my goodness, he was so much more than that, wasn't he? Uh, because he 
gave up his position in heaven uh, to come to earth, uh, to live in this place, and uh, to die um, a death uh, that none of us could, could die. Um, there were many people who were crucified uh, by the Romans, uh, but he was the only one uh, because he was the, the only begotten son of God uh, who could die in our place. Um, and our, our default um, as far as was Jesus enough or do we have to do something? Our default is self-righteousness. Um, we, we all sin and all we want to do is just work as hard as we can to make ourselves right before the big man upstairs. Um, I, I think especially in American culture, uh, we can fall into that trap as there's this person who probably created the universe and I maybe need to be on his good side. Um, so therefore, I should probably act in a decent way. Um, maybe I'll be a part of the 51% who are better than average um, and uh, I'll get a place in heaven. Um, and we certainly do not affirm that. Um, it is not your good works uh, that saves you because while you were a sinner, Christ died for you. He died for me. Um, he died for us. And there is nothing that we can do uh, to earn that salvation. And why did Jesus die on the cross? And it harkens back to the way you like to put things sometimes, Brad. Uh, do we serve a loving God or do we serve a righteous, wrathful God? Yes, of course. Right. I mean, uh, just think, okay, God is holy. We're created. We're not holy. That bothers us. And that gives us reason to reject and to rebel against God, to sin, basically. And uh, we all know from the old days, what are the wages of sin? Wages yeah. of sin? Death. This is from the law. And the law must be fulfilled. Mm -hmm. It must be fulfilled. So do you want God's wrath to fall on you? Hebrews has a couple of quotes, uh, or harkens back to the Old Testament with, from God's uh, word. Vengeance is mine. I will repay. Do you want God's vengeance on you? And also, he's speaking to those who do not have Jesus. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Scary, isn't it? Kind of scary. So the wages of sins is, is death. This law must be fulfilled. So... How is it going to be fulfilled? Jesus himself tells us, Matthew chapter 5, early on in the Sermon on the Mount, I came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And then in the second Corinthians, we hear, for his sake, for our sake, excuse me, for our sake, he, God, made him, Jesus, sin to be sin who knew no sin. Jesus had no sin. What do we need to fulfill the law, we need death to fulfill the law. So this law is fulfilled. Jesus died for us. So we are justified. We no longer have to face that wrath. God, being merciful, basically saved us from himself. Well, it kind of gets back to total depravity. I know that we've heard Brad speak to this and other pastors that have talked about it too. And, and the concept itself kind of lends you to believe, okay, if we're totally depraved, then we're constantly sinning, perpetually sinning, both in mind and body and deed. Everything we think, everything we do is, is saturated in sin. And that's not the concept necessarily of total depravity. It's just that because we are of a fallen nature, we are of Adam, 
that every, every part of our life is touched by sin. And so our, t- our total depravity is, in a sense, what separates us from God. And so we talk about, you know, the law, and we look back to David even, you know, and, and the Ten Commandments were given. You know, all of them required death if you broke one of the Ten Commandments, and King David broke two of them. And so, you know, his prayer to God is deliver me from blood guilt, and he's asking for God to pass over his sin. And so in God's forbearance, he delivers him from that sin, basically killing the firstborn child that David has with Bathsheba. And so, you know, when he gets back to it, when we talk about why did Jesus die on the cross, again, it is because, you know, God's, you know, God's wrath does require blood. Yes, and we'll talk about that. We'll explain what propitiation is next week. A very important word, or I I will explain that in the sermon. Uh, Lord willing. So, one last question. We're out of time, so give the short answer. But this is a very important question. What dangers exist for Protestants in our day with the belief in Christ alone? Because the fact of the matter is, uh, some of the things that you've said put Catholics far closer to what we understand as Orthodox theology than many Protestants. There are a lot of Protestants that don't believe the Bible is God's word, that Jesus is not deity. Catholics believe those things, but then they add to it. Uh, that's the area. So what, but what, what problems exist for us as Protestants with Christ alone? I guess one of the dangers for the priesthood of the believer is that it's kind of running the ragged edge of disaster that, you know, if, if you, similar to what was mentioned in the panel a couple of weeks ago, that if you interpret scripture your own way, you're going to be going to hell in your own way. And essentially, the priesthood of the believer, if abused, can lead to all sorts of strange and cultish beliefs, similar to, like, if you treat cats well, you're going to be going to heaven. Exactly. And so, you know, I think that that's an interesting point to make. But essentially, in in terms of the church as the bride of Christ, um, and I'm kind of curious about whether or not I should mention this, since the Catholics beat the Tar Heels yesterday on the football field. Darkness. um, Darkness. But a good quote from Lou Holtz was, don't tell people your problems. 90% of people don't want to hear about it. They don't care. And the other 10%, they're glad you got them. (laughs) That's not the way church is supposed to work. We're supposed to share our problems. We're supposed to, as, as a priesthood of believers, not basically experience our spiritual lives in a vacuum. We're supposed to experience it as the church. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, we are justified. We are made right in the eyes of God, made righteous uh, by the work that Jesus Christ uh, did. But then there's the process of sanctification, and sometimes we forget that. And that, again, like Chris just said, does not happen in a vacuum. Um, it happens uh, through the body of Christ, the bride of Christ. Um, he is our priest he, was our, he is our prophet. He is our king. And he gave to us, believers, the body, one another. And it is within the context of the body uh, that we are to, to grow um, and, and work through the process of sanctification. Uh, that happens from the, the time that, that God reveals to us um, his truth and our belief uh, to the time that we are glorified um, before him, um, you know, in our death. So the process of sanctification is just so important, um, and it, it cannot happen in a vacuum. Um, you can certainly stay in your closet all day and read your, read your Bible, but you will miss out um, on, on the work that happens through the body of Christ.
So, Mike, the, <clears throat> the, the notion of me and Jesus is a, a little bit <clears throat> incomplete, isn't it? For... Just a little bit incomplete, most definitely. And a danger that exists, you know, it, it's, and using grace as an example today is a good example. We see Jesus as the living word. We see scripture as the written word. This written word comes forth from the pulpit. And just noticing the way that grace always sets up in the morning, how David sets up the, 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 got the, uh, the team. The people are on the wings. The pulpit is in the center where the word emanates from. And nothing is obscuring our focus. We don't want to lose focus on Christ alone. We keep it cleared out. Focus on the cross. Always. We preach Jesus and him crucified, is what Paul said. Christ alone. Uh, a beautiful reminder. Well, thank you guys very much. You can tell they have studied a lot. And they were surprising me right and left up here uh, with their knowledge. And, and I was learning right along with you. It's really great to have elders who are in the word like that. Let's pray, and uh, the worship team will come and close us out. Our Father, we're so grateful for Jesus. Um, and Lord, help us to understand our life in Christ to be uh, in the body of Christ as well. When we think about the intimate terms that you use, for the church, such as the bride of Christ and the body of Christ, we recognize that it's so much more than just me and Jesus. Uh, but Lord, Jesus died for sinners and those who repent of their sin and trust in him can know that he took the payment for them. The, 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 he made the sacrifice <clears throat> and took the punishment, the wrath of God. Why was it poured out on Jesus? Because you love us at that level. And we're grateful. In Christ's name, amen. Would you please stand? May the God of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. And may the grace of the Son, our Lord Jesus, and the comfort of the Holy Spirit be with you. Go in peace. And all of God's people said. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church, located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Grace Community Church, go to graceccnc.org.